It was a Thursday, February 24th, 1791, when a rather famous pastor and revivalist named John Wesley, he sat down and he wrote a letter to encourage a fellow Christian who was experiencing challenges in his faith. His letter included these words. He wrote, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, the scandal of England, and the scandal of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But, but, if God be for you, who can be against you? Let me say that again. If God can be for you, then who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. Amen? Amen. Go on in the name of God and the power of his might. It's a kind of if-then letter, isn't it? If God is for you, if God is with you, if God is guiding you, then keep going. Keep working. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. The recipient of that letter, you may know this, the recipient of that letter was a man named William Wilberforce. His work would, at long last, after decades of his going on in the power of his might, in the power of God's might, his work would end the slave trade in Britain. That's the execrable villainy that Wesley sees is the scandal of religion of England and of the whole world. And John Wesley wrote that letter from his bed. It became his deathbed. This is the last letter he ever wrote. But what happens if that letter is never written? What happens if Wesley never pens those words? What happens if Wilberforce never reads them? What happens in a world that is full of execrable villainies without the reminders of the God who raises us up? What happens if we stop gathering together and stop telling each other the gospel story? If we stop saying to one another, if God is with you, then keep on keeping on. We continue our series on the third day. We're exploring the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. We've seen how Jesus returns to those who deserted him and doubted him and denied him. And this morning we receive a letter like William Wilberforce. We receive a letter in God's word, Matthew 28, verse 16. Matthew writes, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, we've all heard the phrase mountaintop experience, right? And for good reason. Mountains give us a whole new perspective. We are raised up. We are elevated from the ground below. And so we see things differently up on a mountain, don't we? Throughout the scriptures, mountains are, are, are thin places between heaven and earth. They are the place of God's revelation. Think about Matthew's gospel. In chapter 5, Jesus gives the greatest TED talk anyone ever heard, most downloaded talk of all human history, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what is... What is Matthew revealing to us about Jesus in that chapter? Well, that Jesus is a teacher. 
On his way down from the mountain in chapter 8, Jesus heals a man who was born with leprosy. So this Jesus is not only a teacher, Matthew now reveals to us on that mountain that he is a healer. In Matthew 15, on another mountain, Jesus feeds the 4,000. So Jesus is not only a teacher, he's not only a healer, but he is a miracle worker. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his kind of inner circle, up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they hear a voice from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So think about these these mountaintop experiences. Just the ones in Matthew tell us who Jesus is. He, He is not only a teacher, not only a healer, not only a miracle worker, he is the very son of God. He is God in the flesh. So when Jesus told his disciples to meet him at a mountain, they know something is up. Something big is going to happen. Now, when they saw him, we're told, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Notice, the primary response is not fascination, it's not curiosity, it's worship. And worship, at the same time, even after the resurrection, includes some sense of wavering. The disciples are wondering, what does this all mean? Remember, Jesus doesn't disparage them for deserting him, for denying him, for doubting him. In fact, the word used for doubt Here in this verse, the word used for for doubt can also mean um, they were hesitant or they were indecisive. In other words, they're wondering, we're back on a mountain again. What could it mean? We we remember that mountain where Jesus was a teacher and and then a a healer and a miracle worker. We, We remember that mountain where Jesus revealed himself to us as the one sent from God, God in the flesh. What is this mountain going to tell us? What are we going to learn here? Jesus came to them, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, remember, when there's a therefore, you need to know what it's there for, right? (laughs) The great commission of Jesus starts with Jesus' authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's like that letter from Wesley to Wilberforce. The same power that has raised me up is now raising you up to go out into a world filled with execrable villainies. And it is, isn't it? Look at the world around us. There are problems left and right. But here's the point. Jesus calls us up to the mountain that he might send us back into the valleys. Mountaintop experiences are not only for us. Mountaintop experiences where God reveals himself to us, where he gives us his truth, where he sends us out with his power, are so that we might be equipped to go and take what we've learned to those who weren't there. There's an old definition of leadership that I rather like. It, It is, he that leadeth when no one followeth, only taketh a walk. (laughs) And listen, Jesus is not here to merely taketh a walk. Jesus leadeth that we might followeth. If you've ever felt out of your comfort zone or in over your head in living out the Great Commission, take some comfort knowing that Jesus' initial disciples were rather hesitant too. They were rather indecisive as well. Notice these disciples doubt. They are not sure how all this works. They know Jesus is a a teacher and a healer and a miracle worker. They know he is God in the flesh. But what does that mean for them on this mountain? In one of her books, 
um, author Kathleen Norris talks about um, evangelism. She says that she was preparing a sermon for her congregation when it was between pastors. So she's not a, a called pastor. She's an author, speaker, but she's filling in one Sunday. And during her preparation one week, she notices that the bulletin cover that's going to be used in her congregation is uh, mass-produced from a large religious publishing house. It included a pre-printed article there in the bulletin jacket that was entitled, Summer Opportunities. It suggested that since so many people spend time outdoors at baseball games or picnics or on the beach, summer was a great time for Christians to go out with the opportunity to share their faith, right? To live out this great commission of making disciples. In her sermon that Sunday, however, Kathleen Norris stood in the pulpit and said, going up to someone at a picnic and starting a conversation with, excuse me, but do you know the Lord? Might be a good way to get yourself stuck with a barbecue fork. (laughs) And she said you would deserve it. Now, some of us may have that gift. In fact, I know some of us have that ability to strike up a conversation with anyone, anywhere, about the spiritual things. But for the rest of us, think of those earliest disciples of Jesus. Remember that in the first century, disciples would be chosen by rabbis only after they had attended school beginning at six years old. And between the age of, of six and ten, they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized. Conversely, by the age of ten, our kids have memorized a Netflix password. So, you know, we're getting there. Now, the kids who did their best by the age of ten would continue on. They would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis through Malachi, that great Italian prophet. Then and only then would the best of the best apply to be a disciple of a rabbi. Then and only then, 6 to 14 Old Testament Hebrew scriptures memorized. Now the vast majority of those would-be disciples of a rabbi would return home to the family business. They would return home to being farmers or sandal makers or grape growers or fishermen. And where did Jesus call his disciples from? Think through the gospel accounts. Does it seem to you like these guys had the scriptures memorized? No. They were called out from the family business. They were called to follow Jesus because none of them had been accepted by a rabbi. None of them had what it took. None of them had made the cut. And this is what every kid wanted to be when he grew up in the first century. It might not be that way today, that every kid wants to be a pastor. My daughter, when she was three, told us that she wanted to grow up to be a fish. So, you know, there's that. But nowadays, kids want to grow up to be all kinds of things. It might not be a pastor, but in the first century, everybody wanted to be a rabbi. Everybody wanted to be a disciple. But here they stand on that mountain. No wonder they're hesitant. No wonder they're indecisive. They don't want to get stuck with a barbecue fork. They are thinking through their previous mountaintop experiences. They heard Jesus give that sermon. They saw him heal that man. They ate those loaves he multiplied. They heard God's voice. And a few days prior... On another mountain, they also left Jesus alone, abandoned to die on a Roman cross like a common criminal. So what could this mountaintop experience mean? I take great comfort in knowing that their fear and their flight and their failure did not affect their future. 
because I've been afraid and I've run away, I've dropped the ball, I've missed the mark. Just ask Cassie after our gathering this morning. Many times this week I have missed the mark. Time after time. But that need not be the end of my story and need not be the end of your story because it was not the end of the disciples' story because it is not the end of Jesus' story. Look at Jesus' words. I've never noticed this before this week. Jesus uses the same word four times. Now, if you repeat something once, you know, it might even be a slip, might even be a mistake. If you repeat something twice, it might produce an effect. But if you repeat something four times, then you're really intending someone to hear something specific, aren't you? And notice, if you have your, your Bibles there, notice what Jesus says four different times. He uses the Greek word all. 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 What does Jesus say? All authority, all nations, all things, and all ways. Jesus starts with authority. He says all authority on earth and in heaven is his. All authority. All of it belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper once put it this way. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. All authority belongs to Jesus. Now, it may not always seem like that is so. It may not always seem like Jesus has all of the authority. We look around the world today and we see execrable villainies everywhere we look and we say, where is the authority? But look at it from history's perspective. These disciples lived in a world that demanded allegiance to Caesar. They were told and trained that their political ruler was a god and they were to bow their knee and to say, Caesar is Lord. But, but think about it nowadays, 2,000 years later. Caesar is the name of a cheap chain pizza joint with a cartoon mascot. All authority is Jesus's. Jesus is mine. And so with all of that authority, Jesus sends us to all nations. Early in his ministry, Jesus sent his disciples only to the lost sheep of Israel, right? But after his resurrection, because the whole world is his, he sends us everywhere to all people, all cultures, and all nations. All authority, all nations to teach, the third all, all things. All things. Jesus' disciples are sent to teach everything that Jesus taught them. And it was common uh, for disciples to then become rabbis and then to teach their own disciples whatever ideas they had in their heads. That's how it worked in the first century. But Jesus says, no, 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 my kingdom doesn't work that way. You don't teach your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own perspective. You teach mine. All the things that I have taught you. How easily we can make disciples of ourselves. It is my greatest fear in preaching. It is my greatest fear in leading the church that I will unknowingly try to make little disciples of Curtis. That is not what we are here to do. That is not what you are here to be. We are called to make disciples of Jesus by teaching all the things Jesus has taught us. And fourth, fourth, Jesus is with us. What does he say? Always. All, 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 all. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. He is with us. He is for us. We may be like William Wilberforce, in a way, receiving the letter, uh, this inspirational letter. If God is for you, go on. Keep working. Keep sharing that good news. But here's where the analogy falls apart. Jesus is not John Wesley. He, his deathbed led to a resurrection. Amen? 
He is with us always that we might teach all things to all people because he has all authority. We have to be really careful. We have to be really careful that Jesus' all doesn't devolve into some. Think about how easily that happened and how disastrous it can be. Does your Jesus only have some authority? Does he send us only to some people to teach some things? Is he here with us sometimes? When all devolves into some, we end up with a very different gospel. It leaves us with a Jesus who only says these vague spiritual things to certain people, unless they don't really like it, and then we look for a different translation. And it's okay, because he's way up behind the clouds anyway, right? Well, that's not the gospel of all. That's the gospel of some. Jesus says all. He says that because of his resurrection, this missionary impulse of going out into all the world to teach all the things because he's with us always and has all the authority, this missionary impulse is born in Christianity. It was not there in first century Judaism. It was not there when disciples would be chosen by a rabbi. It used to be you'd study under that rabbi after, acting, after acing those first few years of school, but not anymore. Jesus' disciples are sent out to teach everyone everything. John Updike once wrote a poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter. It begins this way. He said, Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse. The molecules re-knit. The amino acids rekindle. The church will fail. In other words, if it's not true what happened that Easter Sunday morning, if it's not true that Jesus didn't stand on that mountain and send out his disciples into all the world, if it's not true, then the church will fail. The church will fall. Some of us may be so bold as to approach someone at an outdoor picnic As I mentioned, I know there's some of you who would do that and would do that very effectively. But I think truly living this Great Commission for most of us is both easier and more difficult at the same time. Easier because go is not the main verb in the sentence. The main verb of the sentence is make. The primary thing we're supposed to be doing is making people who know the teachings of Jesus and seek to follow those teachings of Jesus. Notice, Jesus doesn't even tell us to make Christians. You know, uh, the word Christian comes up in the scriptures only three times. The word disciple comes up 269 times. And they're only called Christians because they're acting like Jesus. And there was some way of, it was, an, it was a name calling. It was, look at those little Christs. They're acting like Jesus. How funny is that? See, Jesus doesn't call us to, to make Christians. He calls us to make disciples. To live so deeply these teachings that Jesus has taught us, all of them, that they might spill out from us and that we might teach others his ways. We are called to make, and we do that by by going and baptizing and teaching. The best translation is, is, as you go, make disciples. As you go about your daily lives, as you go about your interactions with your family, as you go about your interactions in your neighborhood, We don't have to go to the other side of the world or the other part of the park. But we are called to make, to teach, and to baptize. And so on one hand, the Great Commission is easier, but on the other hand, it's more difficult. 
Because we are called to apply the teachings of Jesus to our own lives so thoroughly that then we have them within us and can share them with others. And we're called to do that right where we are. See, in one way, it's easier to go to the other part of the world on a mission trip and to tell people about Jesus whom you will never see again. In my own life, I've found that I can be pretty bold in those situations. But in my interactions with my neighbor, especially now, behind a mask, six feet away, it's a little more difficult, isn't it? Because guess what? I'm going to see that neighbor tomorrow. And he's going to hear me if I yell at my kids. He knows me well. And I know him. See, it's easier in the sense that we don't always have to go to the other side of the world to live out the Great Commission, but it's also more difficult. We're called to live it authentically and honestly and openly right where we are, in our families, at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. See, Jesus doesn't call us up to a mountaintop experience for only our own happiness and health. He calls us up to that mountaintop experience that we might go out into the valleys of execrable villainies. We may be opposed by men and devils, but if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. God, we give you thanks for the opportunity to pause this morning and to think about that mountaintop experience. We recognize that we have had some of our own in our lives as well. We have seen things clearly when we have met you truly, where, where you have met us and drawn us to you. God, we give you thanks that we need not prove ourselves and apply in triplicate to be welcomed into your family, but rather that, that you have sent your people to go out and to recruit, to draw in, to invite. And we are only in that family because someone has done that for us. Someone else has sat at your feet on the mountaintop and come back into the valley. And so, God, as we sit with you at this mountaintop, may we be equipped and empowered to follow you into the valley, whatever valleys you have for us, God, wherever you lead us and guide us. And would you empower us with this meal we're about to receive? As we take it in, would you empower us to go out, that we might be your people, that we might make disciples of all nations, teaching them all things, because you're with us in all ways, and you have all authority. Amen.